your seat. I'm going to start with announcements. Usually I try to wait two or three minutes just because with Houston traffic that gives everybody time to get here, but there's a storm coming. So I, um, I don't want anybody to get trapped in it. So we always remember, for those of you who weren't here, we remember one night we had, this was 15 years ago now, but we had a storm that moved in. Y'all remember that? We had that storm move in right about the time Bible class ended, and we had to, um, we couldn't get out of the parking lot. The feeder road out here was flooded, feeder road, uh, and, and Haddington was all flooded, and a few people tried to get out on the far end of the parking lot, but if you went 200 yards, you, you couldn't get any further, so you'd have to, I had to put it in reverse and come back. So uh, it was 11, 11.30 before we got could leave. So ever since then, we tend to err on the side of caution. All right, three announcements. Number one, or four announcements, actually. Number one, uh, we need a few men to stay after Bible class on Sunday morning to set up conference registration and display tables and maybe uh, put up a few more chairs. I heard we had 200 registered. Now, that's 200 registered to be here physically, not 200, including those who are live streaming. So good turnout. Uh, second, there'll be no Bible class next Thursday night because we will we'll all be exhausted. And third, men's prayer breakfast will be next, not day after tomorrow, but the next Saturday, March 11th at 7.30 a.m., and then the fourth announcement is Bill Wright has written this daily devotional called Today's Thoughts. There's a couple of stacks of them out in the fellowship hall, and he gave me a copy oh, two or three weeks ago, and I've been reading through it and have found not only not found anything objectionable, but he's done a remarkably good job. He's a good writer, and so I recommend that, and you can just uh, take them. It's called Grace. It's a free gift like salvation. All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We all need to make sure we are uh, in fellowship, especially those of you who watched anything on the evening news tonight. Uh, That way you can get your focus back on that which never changes and always uh, encourages and strengthens us. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will begin. Father, it is a 
tremendous privilege that you have given us that we can come together in a in a place of freedom, in a country of freedom, a nation that recognizes that these are our God-given rights. And for the time being, they still recognize that, even though, as I have prayed for 25 years, the forces of darkness gather, and their target is us. And Father, we pray that you would continue to protect us, defend us. Uh, we do not see the ultimate forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness, as Paul describes them, but we do know the minions, the human minions that they have influenced and they despise with every ounce of their being uh, who we are and what we believe. And Father, we pray that you might strengthen us with your word because dark days may come, and as Paul mentions in this passage, where he reminds the Philippians that they are aware of the suffering he had gone through, and they have uh, joined him in that to some degree, and that um, it is a privilege for us to suffer on behalf of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you for this and ask you to help us understand what we are to do, how we are to think from this passage. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we are now finishing up tonight the first chapter of Philippians. It's only taken us, what, about 30 lessons, 34, 35 lessons, I think, something like that, 34. And so we are focusing now on these last two chapters, uh, two verses rather, and actually this last section, which is verses 27 to 30, are the, is the opening paragraph that sets the topical uh, statement for the rest of this epistle. And so we started last time, which was two weeks ago, and because we had the Ukraine special last week, and if you haven't seen that, I recommend that to you. Okay, we have four verses here and two sentences. In the first sentence, which comprises verses 27 and 28, the focus is on how we should live our lives, and it's directed to the uh, Philippian believers. And Paul writes, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So see, in this passage, it talks about the fact that uh, they need to stand fast because they are uh, facing adversaries, and they're not to be terrified of the, these adversaries, the opposition, and that we, verse 29, talks about uh, the fact that God has, actually should, I think it should be translated, graciously given us the privilege to suffer for his sake. And then in verse 30, uh, 
we, we have this same conflict. That is the opposition uh, from the uh, world system. So we have here in this slide, we break down the two different passages, two different sentences rather. And then in this slide, the red indicates the two basic uh, cl- uh, primary clauses, your main clauses. Number one, you have the command, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, in a, in a sentence like that where you have a command, the command is either, is always binary. Either you do it or you don't do it. There's no in between. You have two options, yes or no. And so they, they are given this mandate that the way they conduct their lives, and we studied that last time, I'll remind you of the significance in a minute, is he's setting family standards. We're in the royal family of God, and the royal family of God has a father, God the Father, and God the Father set down standards and policies for his family. And we are to live in light of those standards and not bring shame upon the body of Christ. That is the focal point there. And then when we get to verse 29, you notice that it says, Four at the very beginning, and this is telling us that it is explaining the reason why you have this command at the beginning. So the opening sentence, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, for tells us why. In between, you have the results that should come as a result of living, uh, living worthy of the gospel. And when in this tonight we're going to be looking at verse 29 where there is some uh where there's some controversy and we have to look at the connective word always. Uh Dr. S. Lewis Johnson at Dallas Seminary taught Greek for many many years starting back in the mid-50s, I mean, mid-40s, you should always say the most important stuff to look at in doing exegesis are the connectives. Your fors, ands, buts, therefore, wherefore, those are all very, very important. For, and then you have the word granted, which is an option, a legitimate option for translating that, but I think there are better options. And then... Uh, the granted involves two things. Number one, to believe in him. And number two, to suffer for his sake. And then you have a participle, I think, of attendant circumstances, which is basically saying it describes the things that are going on in relation to their current situation, which is that they have in them uh, you, they had the same conflict which they saw in Paul originally, and now they hear in him. So by way of just a wee bit of review, we have the question, what is a worthy walk? And that is described, first of all, in verse 27, as a worthy walk that is characterized by unity. Not unity at the expense of doctrine, which is what we're trying, people on the uh, other side are trying to aim for now, 
oh, give up all your beliefs in biblical absolutes. That's just old-fashioned, and that's antiquated, and we need to have a great awakening instead of a great awakening. And everybody needs to come together with under the rainbow flag and just hug on each other. But see, that's, that's just the latest development in ecumen- ecumenism. Ec- ecumenical, in fact, had a really good meaning at the very beginning but because it had to do with the unity of the church. And in the early years, early centuries, uh, there was a unity. And the first six or seven church councils that were gathered from the leaders throughout the Roman Empire those are referred to as the ecumenical councils and they're used and the word ecumenical has been used in that way for centuries and that's a good use of the word but today it has a bad meaning because the ecumenical side to get everybody to join hands and sing kumbaya you basically have to give up what the scripture says it's at the expense of doctrine But when you look at the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 4, it's the unity of the faith. That means those who don't agree with that which is laid down in Scripture need to leave so the rest of us can be unified. And that's what we are to do. So that's the emphasis in Philippians 1.27, that we are to stand fast. We're to be steadfast. We're to be firm. We're to be solid. We're not to waffle. We're not to go wobbly in the knees. In one spirit, that is talking about our uh, our attitude, I think, in this passage. It's difficult sometimes to decide. You have the phrase spirit, the word spirit, rather, pneuma, which can mean wind or breath It can mean spirit in the sense of the Holy Spirit. It can be spirit in the sense of the human spirit. It can be spirit in just as a general broad term for that which is immaterial in man. And all of those, and you have to, and it can also mean a mindset, a mental attitude. Uh, uh, It can sometimes even refer to an emotion. So we have to look at the context to figure out what that means. So that we stand fast in one spirit with one mind, uh, that, that he adds one mind would indicate that one spirit has to do with our uh, attitude, our, our, our focus, one spirit, one attitude, an attitude of unity, and with one mind we think the same things. We have a body of truth, a body of doctrine that we agree on. And that is the basis for our unity. And the result of it is that we work together, strive together, work together for the faith of the gospel. Now, this idea of unity is introduced here, but it's expanded in the second chapter. And in the second chapter, in verses 1 through 4, we have these seven characteristics, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, uh, nothing done from selfish ambition or self-absorption. Uh, we are to be in humility, that is, lowliness of mind. We're to esteem others better than oneself. And then lastly, look out for the interests of others as well as one's own. 
Now, how do we look at this and say, well, how are we like-minded? What does that consist of? And that's the second paragraph of chapter 2. Have this same mentality, this same mindset in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So there's a standard there, and that is understanding the thinking of Christ. And then, and it focuses on humility, because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So it's, it's recognition of God's authority. And then how that is worked out in our lives is then developed in verses 12 to 18. And then examples of in two people, Timothy and Epaphroditus, brings up the rest of that chapter. So chapter 2 is going to develop what we have stated in summary fashion in verse 27. And as Paul gives them this command, the result is then stated that whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent. It's sort of like when your parents said, I'm going to be leaving you alone for the rest of the day. I've got things to go do, and you're going to be home alone. But the neighbors are going to be around, and so I want you to live as I've taught you and and, be, and behave yourself as I've taught you because whether I come back early and catch you or I hear about it from the neighbors, I'm going to know how you behave yourself. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs. And what does he want to hear? I want to hear that you stand fast, that you're steadfast, that you're not going wobbly on the gospel, that you're not going wobbly on the person of Christ, that you're not going to synthesize uh, with uh, pagan ideas, but you're going to stick with what I have taught you. That's the first thing, is to be steadfast in unity. And the second is, and you're not going to get terrified by your adversaries. So those are the two things that are brought out there, that unity and not being terrified. So what he says is, I want you to stand fast with one spirit, strive together with one mind, and it's all directed toward the faith of the gospel. And here I think that faith refers to not the act of belief, but the content of what one believes. And the content is related to the gospel, faith with regard to the gospel, the good news, evangelion in the Greek means the good news. And so they have to have a clear understanding of the gospel. Do you think we have among Bible-believing evangelicals today a clear understanding of the gospel? No. I'm amazed sometimes, and I have to keep going back to Philippi, earlier in Philippians 1 when Paul says, well, some of them are preaching the gospel from wrong motives, and I just rejoice that they're preaching the gospel. Because there's a lot of people who do seem to at least superficially teach that you have to believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And they're fairly accurate to a point. They don't get very deep, so they don't get off and out in the weeds or out of bounds, but they do get seem to get the gospel out there. On the other hand, there are people who obfuscate 
the fact that they're not proclaiming the gospel. And you don't hear it very well. You may hear some things articulated, for example, at the beginning of a, of a message that this is the Bible, I am what it says I am, I do what it says I do, and I need to believe what it says I should believe. And that's about the last you hear of it. But um, I understand that in one of the churches where you often hear that, that there have been a few people who have actually gotten saved there because uh, not because it was made clear, but because God the Holy Spirit made it clear. If somebody just unwittingly puts it out there that you need to believe Christ died for your sins, the Holy Spirit can grab that piece of truth and use it, and people can get saved. There are all kinds of apostate denominations where they use biblical language, but they don't mean mean it the way the Bible does, and yet... People get saved, and little, little kids hear that Jesus saved, and they see him hanging on the cross up on the wall or up at the front of the church, and they understand at a child's level that, that they need to believe in Jesus or they'll go to the lake of fire. And so they believe, and then as they go through confirmation or whatever, then they're going to learn things that are not true. But at one moment in time, they caught the issue and believed. So this is what Paul's focusing on, is we need to be unified on the gospel. Another problem that we have today, which I'm going to address in a minute, is a problem of those who are uh, making too much of the sovereignty of God in the salvation process. On the other hand, you have those who make too much of the work of man. And that has to be clarified, and this is a verse that is sometimes used by those who uh, try to put everything on God. When we talk about unity, it reminds us of what we did in Ephesians 4.1. That, um, wait, wait a minute, go back to that slide. This passage, it's interesting, there's a lot of discussion and debate about why Paul uses this word translated, exercise your citizenship. It's the word polytuomai, and polytuo and, um, comes from the root P-O-L-I, which is where we get the word for polis, the city. That's where we get, that's the root for where we get our word politics. It's a root for the word we get for police. You know, all of those have to do with the function of the city, state, or the government. And so this has to do with citizenship, but it really comes to be used as a um, as an idiom for how you live your life. We are to live our lives as good citizens. That's the literal meaning. And as believers, we are to live our lives, and later Paul will use a form of this word to indicate our citizenship in heaven. Uh, not our, it should not be expressed as our citizenship in the kingdom, because the kingdom is future. And there's too many people who talk about some present form of the kingdom. There is no present form of the kingdom, because there is no present king on the earth, on the throne of David in the city of David. So it has this way, and it's translated that way uh, in a couple of other passages where it's used clearly just meaning that how we conduct our lives. But I think the parallel over in Ephesians 4.1 
tells us this because there, rather than using the more, um, I won't say politically correct, but the more, uh, a word that has more, more depth to it in the, in Philippi because this, the, the Philippi was settled by Roman soldiers and it's a, it's a Roman colony. So it has greater uh, a greater depth of significance for them, but in the parallel in Ephesians four one, Paul says, "I therefore, by the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, or strongly urge you to walk." And there it's um, peripateo, which means to walk step by step. And when um, um, when uh, Aristotle was teaching in the um, teaching his students, they would walk through the various um, uh, areas of, of, the, um, uh, of the city and the marketplace, and they were called peripatetics from peripateo. They walked, and they would walk, and they would talk and discuss all these deep things in philosophy. So... It, that, but it's a, it doesn't mean literally to walk. It, it has, it's a metaphor for how you live your life. So the, when you compare these two passages, both are using idioms that ultimately mean to live your life in a manner that is worthy of what the Lord has done for us and of this high position uh, that we have been called to. Now, the worthy walk in Ephesians 4, 2 and following indicates lowliness and the emphasis of keeping the unity of the Spirit. Philippians 2, 2 through 4 uses this same language, being of one accord, of one mind, lowliness of mind, same thing. So they're, they're, they're two passages that complement each other. So Philippians 1, 7 should be translated, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel about the Messiah. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand firm in one spirit and with one mind, one soul, literally, by working together for the faith of the gospel. And how are they working together for the faith of the gospel? They are financially contributing. As Paul says at the end of Second Corinthians, they are giving out of their poverty. They're giving out of their poverty for the support of what Paul is doing. So I think this is clearly one of those uh, few passages where gospel doesn't refer just in a narrow sense to the good news of how a person gets eternal life, but all that flows from that in terms of their of their new life in Christ, where they begin to grow in the knowledge uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, verse 28 uh, the second part, not in any way terrified by your adversaries. So they are not to be terrified by their adversaries. They are to just these two things, walk worthy by unity and not being terrified. So that brings us then um, down to verses 29 and 30. Verse 29 starts off with this explanatory word for. 
Sometimes it could have a causal idea and be translated because, but here it's got the idea for. It is explaining the command, and it says, uh, it's answering the question of, well, Paul, what do you mean by a worthy walk, which is developed later? He says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, for this is why you need to live your life uh, in this way. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And then there's this participial phrase in verse 30 that explains the suffering that they're, they've seen in him and the suffering that, um, that he's gone through. So let's break this down a little bit, because this is one of really two passages where you're going to hear some Calvinist argue that what we see here is that God gives us faith, and that's not what is going on here at all. So I want to explain that uh, just a little bit. So in Reformed theology, this is in terms of Calvinistic theology, you have to understand that a basic premise is that regeneration precedes faith. A person has to be born again in order to be able to have faith because if they're spiritually dead, a dead person can't hear, a dead person can't talk, a dead person can't see, so a dead person can't even believe, so they have to be made alive first and then they can express faith. So we're going to go through a few things to try to explain why this passage doesn't say that. First of all, it is possible that this passage could mean that. I mean, within all the options, it possibly could mean that just on the basis of language. But this is where, in terms of hermeneutics, we have to bring in the law of spandex. Just because you can wear spandex doesn't mean you should wear spandex. So just because that, just on a basic look at the meaning of words, that a that you can possibly get that inference doesn't mean that you should because of context and other things. And there's also another rule a more accurate rule, not a made-up funny one. And that is that if you have a passage that's not clear, or it could mean one of two or three things on the basis of just word studies, and you have another passage that is clear, you have to interpret the passage that isn't clear or that can mean one of two things, you have to control its meaning by the one that is extremely clear. You understand? So that if there's another passage that makes it really clear that faith is not the gift, then that has to control your interpretation of this passage, that it's, that's not what it's, what it's really saying. So let me work through a few things on this. This is the phrase, to, who, to you it has been granted... And so whenever we look at words where God is the 
one who's performing the action of a verb that is related to grace or giving. That's the idea there is, is something to do with grace. And that's actually what we have here because we don't have the primary word for giving, which is the word didomi. You have the word charizomai. Now, this is a, a word that has a wide range of meaning. Uh, the, it has the sort of the basic meaning of giving or providing a favor or even forgiving. When we get to the end of Ephesians 4, we're going to uh, see Paul is going to say, forgive one another as God for Christ's sake forgave you. And it's not the word for forgiveness you have in 1 John 1, 9, which is afiemi. It's the word charizomai. And they overlap in their meanings. And charizomai comes from the uh, noun charis, which is the word for grace. So it is a verb emphasizing grace. So when you see it translated as forgiveness, and it's used that way in a couple of parables where it's talking about the forgiveness of a debt, it, it's emphasizing the gracious aspect of forgiveness, that it's not something that's earned or deserved, but it's something that is graciously given. So here the idea is that this is something that is graciously provided by God, and it has um, the idea of saying or doing in the uh, Liddell Scott Jones at the end, that's not A-Y, that's S-A-Y, uh, say or do something agreeable to a person or show them favor or kindness. And so that's the, that's the idea. And this is done on behalf of Christ. And so we have to understand this, that there are two things that are graciously given to us. And most of you don't think the second one is very gracious at all, which calls for an attitude adjustment. So the first one, we're going to look at the last one first, and that is we have been graciously given the privilege of suffering for Christ's sake. Now, the best way to express this is that we have been provided the privilege of suffering for Christ. So when when you have this started off with with a uh this this idea we can either su- suffer or not suffer right not everybody's going to suffer so if you are living in the second or maybe third per- third century early third century in the dc in persecution and roman soldiers come to your door and they bang on the door and they say um We're here to have you sign your oath to swear that Caesar is Lord. And you're a Christian. You know, well, if I say, no, I'm not going to do that, then they're going to take me down. They're going to torture me, and then they're going to either throw me to the lions or burn me at the stake. Or I can just say, say perfunctorily, yes, Caesar is Lord, and nobody's going to do anything and I'll be okay and they're not going to torture me. So I just don't feel like giving it up for God today. So I'm just going to say Caesar is Lord. So you're not going to suffer. My point in this is that when it, when we read it to you, it has been granted to suffer. There's an option there. 
You've been given the privilege or the opportunity to suffer. And sometimes you're going to say yes, and sometimes you're going to say no. And we're all that way. Well, if I take a stand for the Lord, I'm going to get, I just don't have time for all that ridicule and garbage today. I got to move on and do other things. That's especially true if you're young and you're, you're a kid and you're dealing with peer pressure. But my point is that if we look at the second thing that we are graciously given, we realize that it's an option between suffering or not suffering. We have an option there. It's not mandatory. We're not given suffering as an automatic reality. We have an option whether we're going to say or do certain things that may bring about that that suffering. Having said that, let's apply that to the first one. We have been graciously given the privilege of believing in Him. Well, that means that it's a binary option. We either believe or we don't believe. If one of them is not automatically given, then the other isn't given either. We're talking about a privilege or an opportunity to believe or a privilege or an opportunity to suffer. It's not talking about God is just zapping us with faith and then we can believe. Uh, He zaps us with regeneration and then we can believe. And the other interesting thing about this is that when it uses that phrase, believe in him, have you ever read that anywhere else? That phrase, believe in him? John uses it all the time in the Gospel of John. It's the exact same phrase that John uses, believe in him. You find it in John 1.12. For as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become children of God, even to them who what? Believe in his name. That's the same phraseology. For John 3.16, For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, what? Believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is understood is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Three times it has pistuo ace. That's the the Greek for believing and then expressing the object, and it's either him or his name in in John 3.18. And again and again and again, you have that same phrase used all through the Gospel of John. And so Paul uses it also. That's the Gospel. And according to the semantics, uh, pistuo ace can be translated believing in him or believing that he is. So sometimes in English, you hear uh, seminary students and others say, well, you, you have to believe in Jesus, that's personal, but if you just believe that he died for your, cross, for your sins, that's not personal, and so that's not right. Uh, but the, in the Greek, there's no distinction. It, the, both believing in and believing that translate the same phrase in Greek again and again. So let's have a little review as to what happens at salvation. First of all, every human being is born spiritually dead. Now, we have to define spiritual death. 
It's not, uh, this, let the scriptures define it by uh, specific statements on the one hand and on examples on the other hand. It's not theologically imposed that spiritual death means that you, just like a dead person can't see, can't hear, can't smell, can't talk. So a spiritually dead, I mean, that's a physically dead person. A spiritually dead person can't believe. They can't do anything. But that's not how the Bible expresses spiritual death. Spiritual death has to do with um, being alienated from the life of God. That's what's stated in Ephesians 4.18. It has to do with something related to our understanding, our ability to comprehend spiritual truth. So we're alienated. We have our understanding darkened. We are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and the blindness of the heart. See, that's not the total inability that Calvinists use. You're familiar with the acronym for five points of Calvinism that were uh, laid out at the Senate of Dort, and that they were actually a response to the five points of Arminianism. And it is typical of most Calvinists that they will say, well, you're either one or the other. That's the fallacy of the excluded middle. There are a number of variations between the two, but not if you're talking to a hardcore five-point Calvinist or hardcore five-point Arminian. And the in-between positions aren't a little of one and a little of other. The, the intermediate position is completely different from either one, and it restates it. And what we have to recognize is being alienated from the life of God means we're unable to do anything to merit or to earn God's approval. That's Isaiah 64, 6. We are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we lack the ability to understand the things of God. And this is what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is a very important passage, and it's, again, it's controversial, and I don't think there are a lot of people that get this right. It's very important in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verse 14, a natural man, that is a soulish man, one without a human spirit. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. In spiritual death, uh, he hears it, he can uh, somewhat understand what the words mean, but in because of his presuppositional uh, unbelief, he can't comprehend it. And that's what he goes on to say. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Now, we know in, in, in Jesus, uh, Jesus says in John 16 that it is the Holy Spirit that is going to come and convict the world uh, of sin and, and righteousness, and that that's what the Holy Spirit becomes the arbiter of, of and the explainer of the gospel to the un, uh, unbeliever. So we, we're born spiritually dead, but we have to define that right. We believe in total depravity, but not total inability. So the theological term, that's the second point, the theological term for this is total depravity. That is, every part of man, body, soul, and spirit, is corrupted and affected by sin. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can be, 
or as evil as we can be, or as wicked as we can be. But it does mean that every part of our being is corrupted so that we cannot produce anything that merits the righteous approval of God. Jesus said to his disciples in a verse I don't hear quoted a lot, he says, if you then being evil, he's talking to his disciples, they're saved. Matthew 7, is he's taken his disciples aside, and he, they're on the, um, on, on the mountain there by the, uh, on the hill by the, uh, by the Sea of Galilee, and he's just talking to his disciples, and he's, he tells them they're evil. And they're saved at that point, all but one. And he says, you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. See, even though we are fallen, corrupt sinners, we can do relatively good things. It just isn't good enough to merit the righteous approval of God. Third, faith in itself has no merit. See, in Calvinism, faith has merit. You've got to have the right kind of faith. You have to have saving faith. That you can have a faith in Christ, according to John MacArthur, that doesn't save. And that's what he says about those in at the end of John chapter 2, when Jesus has come to his first Passover in Jerusalem, and he's performed many signs and wonders, and it says, and many believed in his name. Guess what language that is? Pistuo eis autan. Same language we were just talking about. All the way through John, that's what the salvation's based on, believing in him. And so you have all these people, and John says, believed in him, and MacArthur says, not really, because they believed on the basis of signs. It's in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus. They believed on the basis of signs, so it's not a saving faith. And you want to say, well, Dr. MacArthur, back there when you get to the end of, of the Gospel of John in John 20, 30, and 31, the context is the sign of the resurrection, and it says at the in John twenty thirty says, and Jesus did many other signs, but these are written. These what? These signs. These are written that you might believe. Wait a minute. You just said that belief based on signs is an inadequate belief. You're contradicting John twenty thirty and thirty one. That's not right. There's no such thing as an inadequate faith in Christ, if that's what you're, what you're believing in. So, we have to recognize that faith has no merit. Faith is simply belief. It's thinking with assent. That was how Augustine defined it. And that is a good definition. When we think about something, and we're reading something, we say, yes, that's true. We're thinking with assent. We're agreeing that it is true. And believers and unbelievers equally believe things. They equally believe wrong things. They equally believe right things. They equally believe true things. And they equally believe false things. So this is, this is really important to, to understand that. And a lot of people don't like the word assent. Assent is related to volition. You have to understand, and it's related to cognition. We have to understand something to agree that it is true. If you don't understand it, and you say, yeah, that's true, well, you really, 
sort of get an F minus on that because you didn't understand it to begin with. You can't believe something you don't understand. Now, you may accept it provisionally for the sake of getting a grade in a course on thermodynamics, but that doesn't mean you understood it. So what we assent to biblically is to the correct salvation proposition. A lot of people say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. There are a lot of professing believers. Yes, you're right. They profess that I'm a Christian. They don't profess, quote, I believe in Christ as the one who died for my sins, unquote. They say, I'm a Christian. Really? How do you know you're a Christian? Well, I've been going to Umpty Dump Church for all my life. And, and it's a Christian church, so therefore I'm a Christian. My parents named me Christian, so I've been a Christian all my life. My parents are Christian, so I'm a Christian. Or in some cultures, if you're not Muslim and you're not Jewish, then you're automatically a Christian. Well, that doesn't get you anywhere. So it's wrong to say a statement like, I believe that the Bible says Christ died for my sins. I believe that Darwin wrote that, that we all evolve from monkeys. That doesn't mean I believe that we all evolve from monkeys. So a lot of people say, yeah, that's what the Bible says, but they don't make it personal. They don't say, I believe Christ died for me. Christ on the cross bore in his own body my sins. He is my substitute. He paid for that, and I am trusting in him that when I get to heaven and I'm asked, why should I let you in? I'm going to say, because Christ died for me. You'll be surprised how many... I used to, in my first church, I had to interview people who wanted to be members, and I would ask that question. If you died today and you showed up at the gates of heaven and Peter said, why should I let you in? What are you going to say? People were like, um, well, I've always gone to a good church. I understand the Bible. I believe the Bible. I mean, these are people who were saved. They just bumfuzzled because they had never been put on the spot like that. What do we say? I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins. Fifth thing we have to understand is we believe with our minds. We don't believe with our emotions. These words are technical words that have been worked over for centuries in various languages, so we know that belief is what you do with the thinking part of your soul. You don't feel it. Belief is not an emotion. Belief is understanding something and trusting that it is true. So first you have to understand the meaning of the statement that we're sinners. We need to be saved. Christ died for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins. And he died for my sins. I remember, and many of us have the same experience. I remember when my my parents told me uh, the gospel when I was six years old. So on Mother's Day of 1959. And... I can always go back to that, and I remember that. But I remember many times I would be at camp, or I would be at church, and or I would be in Sunday school, and the teacher, pastor, counselor, whomever, would go through the gospel, and I would sit there and go, Lord, 
I just want to remind you in case you forgot that I trusted Christ back when I was six years old and I believe he's my savior. And I know some of you are smiling because you know you've done that too. You just, you reaffirm it because uh, you just want to make sure you really did it. You don't want to make any mistakes. So you either believe these statements are true or you believe they're false. And I've gone through this as I usually do on Sunday morning uh, at the close in my closing prayer. And I talked to somebody recently, and they were sitting here in for the first time, and they heard me go through the gospel that, that morning and then in the closing prayer, and they said, yeah, I believe that. That's, that, that's right. And, and they got saved right then and there. Of course, God knew they believed it before they said in their mind they believed it because God knows. You, you don't have to pray a sinner's prayer and say, God, I believe it. God already knows what you believe or don't, before you ever say it. He knows you be, exactly when you believe it. So the merit, see back here what we're saying is everybody can believe. Anybody can believe. Faith is faith. It doesn't matter. What makes a difference is what you're believing. The merit or the value is in the object of faith. Merit is a term that describes an action for which either reward or punishment is due. If the word meritorious refers to something that deserves honor, praise, or esteem. The merit isn't because you believe something. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in Christ. He's the object of faith. The object of faith is Christ's death on the cross, his death, burial, resurrection. He paid the penalty for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. So what Paul is saying here, for to you it has been graciously get, given, a graciously granted, number one, not only do you have the privilege and opportunity to believe in him, which you did, but also to suffer for his sake. There's one promise in the Bible. There's probably more than one, but there's one promise in the Bible that I'm aware of that I don't know, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I don't know too many people who want to claim this promise. But it's in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and, and Paul writes to Timothy and says, those who desire to be, God, be godly will be persecuted. That's a promise. Most Christians kind of blow past that real fast. Uh, I'm not sure I understand that. What it means is if you're a Christian, you're living in the devil's world, at some point or another, whether you realize it or not, you are being opposed by Satan and by by the demons and those that uh, that that are in league with them, even though they don't know it. And then Paul closes with Philippians 1.30, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. So you have a past participle. You saw this in me. Well, when did they see this in him? Well, well, they saw him in the past, in Acts 16, when he first came to Philippi. What happened? As he's going through the streets, he's being uh, 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 his presence is being announced by this demon who is possessing a young girl that's got this gift of fortune-telling, and she is proclaiming who he is, and then he cast the demon out, and her owners got mad at Paul and hauled him before the authorities, and then everybody got mad at him, and they allowed him to be beaten with rods and and whipped, all of which was illegal because he was a Roman citizen. So they saw that in him, 
and they saw him thrown into jail, and that's when later he's freed miraculously, but he doesn't leave, and he tells the Philippian jailer when he says, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Another command has two options. It's binary. You either believe or you don't believe. So that takes us to understanding another passage, which I'm not going to get to tonight because I said I'm going to stop about 820 to 825 so that we can all get home safely tonight. And um, I don't think it's going to be too bad. It's going to be fast, this storm that's coming through. And uh, it'll get. it's supposed to enter northwest Harris County in about uh, 45 minutes. So unless you're going up to uh, someplace like uh, Waller, you're going to escape the rain if you go home in a few minutes. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight, to be encouraged in our own faith, our understanding of the gospel, our trust in Christ, and that you've given us the great privilege and opportunity by hearing the gospel to believe or not believe, to suffer or not to suffer. You have given us that that opportunity to believe in Christ and have everlasting life and to suffer on his behalf because of what he has done, uh, living uh, worthy of what has taken what Christ has done for us on the cross. So, Father, we pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged to be able to articulate our faith and understand what the issues are uh, and be able to express that to others. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.